0: This is lesson 12 in the series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? The ushers are passing out the uh, notes, so if you don't have notes and you would like them, if you'll raise your hand, uh, they'll put some notes in your hands. This uh, message is titled, At Least for the Moment, Whatever Happened to Male Leadership? I have to admit, I have some reservations as I approach this message, especially having devoted four messages to the subject of the uh, the role of women in the ministry of the church. And time is only going uh, to permit me to do one message here. It doesn't really seem fair, and in truth it isn't. And, and hopefully we may remedy that by... Uh, by an elective class that will focus more on leadership and and its implications for the church and if so that will be i think the occasion at which we may deal with it in the depth that the subject deserves i would say this that when we uh, when you think about the 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 women of this church the question that is not in their minds and the desire that is in their hearts is not can I be a leader, can I lead men in this church? That is not the issue. The concern of the women in this church is that the men in the church would lead. And, and there is in this church, but in, in the church in general, there is a desperate need for men to be leaders in the home, in the family, and in the church. And so this is a very, very important subject um, that we have before us today. Some of you may wonder about my sanity. As, as, the, uh, as the text was read, you may wonder what this has to do with leadership. It was actually about 30 years ago that, that I taught on the book of Genesis in this text. And I know that, not because my memory is so good but because we didn't have computers then, and I started on computers in 1981, Kay Glenn typed this series with an IBM Selectric. So now I've got my dates fixed in my mind as to uh, how long ago it was. But from this text, I had a section which I called, Jacob's Seven Laws of Leadership. And I thought I'd just uh, share those with you because uh, it seems to me they flow out of the text. Now remember, that, that uh, Joseph has been sold as a slave uh, into Egypt. His brothers have come down for the first time. And, and Joseph has accused his brothers of being spies and whatever. And they, they in their fear and whatever, blurted out that there were actually 12 sons and that one was no more and one was back at home. Benjamin was back at home with dad. And so uh, Joseph keeps Simeon. Uh, As his prisoner and says, don't come back unless you bring with you this brother Benjamin to prove to me that you are true men and not liars who have been sent to spy out the land. He remember then he, he sent their gold back in their in their sacks and they returned back. They found the gold and they said, oh, my goodness, what is God doing to us, not for us? And then they get back to Jacob, and Jacob basically says to them, Why in the world did you tell the truth? Have I not taught you anything? You know, Jacob the deceiver, the conniver. And, and, and then he holds out, uh, not willing to send his sons back to ask for grain, because he won't re- release Benjamin to go. And it's not until they're in dire need that he will then send the sons back to do this and those words were read to you. So out of that context comes these seven laws of leadership, uh, Jacob's laws of leadership. One, whatever problems arise today are best dealt with tomorrow, put it off. Isn't that what he did? He didn't let his sons go back in a timely fashion. He held them up until it was crisis mode again and it was either starvation Or send his son. Procrastination. None of us can identify with that. No problem, number two, no problem can possibly be as bad as it seems. Minimize it, you know, or spin it. Uh, But don't acknowledge the problem to be what it is. Three, honesty is not the best policy. That was Jacob's way of doing things. Deceive. It had been his life pattern. Four, always look out for number one. What have you done to me? That's what he says. You guys have done this to me. It's all about me, not about his family and his responsibilities as the leader in the family. Five, as much as possible, see to it that others receive the blame for any problems. That's what he did. Lee lays it off on the sons. You told the truth. You're the ones that got us into this trouble. You figure out how to get us out of it. Six. If your efforts to solve a problem fail, add money. Remember, that's when he sends back the bribe. And and, and he says, take this with you. That's surely what's going to get it done. And and as I've said when I taught that passage, the irony of that is the very things he sent were the things that were taken by the caravan that carried Joseph. They were the reminders of the injustice done to him. They were not. Anything that did any benefit, uh, as much as Jacob may have thought, and seven, when all else fails, trust God. You know, only it's not even that good here, is it? It's just be fatalistic. Whatever will be, will be. You know, like like in Esther, if I perish, I perish. Not very good. Now, as I read through those today, I was thinking to myself, man, these sound sort of familiar. And I said, oh yes, it's election year. I've been reading this in the paper. No wonder these things look familiar to me. This is the laws of leadership. It's at work today. You can see it in motion. But you can look, as you look through the Bible, you will see that the the Bible is just filled with illustrations of failures in leadership. Now, we know that good men sometimes failed, and so it doesn't mean that their lives were a constant failure. But you think about Abraham, Adam in the garden when, when he listened to his wife. He was silent. He was following when he should have led. Abraham has some instances that weren't too glorious. Here is a man who has been told that he and his wife are going to bear a child that's going to be the one through whom all the promises are fulfilled. If anyone should have been intent on protecting the purity of his wife, it is Abraham, and he is the one who passes her off as his sister so somebody else can marry her to save his neck. And it happens in chapter 12, it happens in chapter 20, and in chapter 20 he says, that's the way we always did it. So here's a, a, a pattern of behavior of not protecting his wife. And then of course the instance where he, uh, he listened to Sarah as to bearing a, uh, an heir through Hagar, and you all know the consequences of that. Moses, remember, failed with regard to the circumcision of his son in Exodus. It was his wife who had to circumcise that child lest God would strike them dead. Eli and Samuel are are just two of those men who, who failed in their leadership roles within their family. They did not discipline their sons as they should have, and that brought difficulty for others. David in his dealings with his children as great a leader as David was in some areas of his life he did not do well in regard to his family he did not deal well with the, with the rape of of his daughter Tamar by his son Amnon he did not deal well with the with uh, Absalom for taking the life of Amnon and, and fleeing he had to be pushed into doing the right things at critical moments in time. So David had some points at which his leadership failed as well. There are also examples, fortunately, of good leadership in the Bible. And we can look uh, through the Old Testament and the New, and we can find examples that we ought to follow uh, in lives of men like Moses and Joseph and Daniel and and David. And and this message is going to focus upon male spiritual leadership. So the first thing we really need to do is to talk about the necessity of of male spiritual leadership, and that takes us back in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 1. You remember in the creation account in Genesis 1, God created man, created male and female, and he says, let them rule. Uh, I understand that in the broader context of chapter 2, that Eve's role as a helper suitable for Adam would be that she would assist him in carrying out those responsibilities. It's not, frankly, it's not all that different in terms of the role that deacons would have in relationship to elders. Elders are given the primary leadership responsibility and deacons will help to implement and carry those things out uh, through their ministries. So you have the the creation of man, their responsibility to rule. And by the way, the them ruling is to rule over creation. This is not talking about authority within the, the marital relationship. It is talking about mankind's responsibility to the creation that God has made and they were to rule over it. And then you remember, of course, the fall that came about And I'm going to insert uh, in between points 2 and 3, Genesis 3.17, because that's where uh, God says to Adam, uh, it is because you listened to the voice of your wife. Adam followed when he should have led. And that, of course, was a significant factor in the fall of, of man. But in Genesis chapter 3, at verse 16, it's interesting how the Net Bible translates that when, when the curse is being uh, pronounced with respect to Eve. He says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. I'm not sure. Most of the translations don't use the word dominate there, but rule over or whatever the the term is, but it's obviously a, a, a word that speaks about leadership within that relationship. I do think they are right that the desire of the woman for the man I don't think is a physical desire. I think it's saying the natural inclination is for you to take charge, and that's something you're going to have to deal with, and his role will be that he is to rule over you. So right at the beginning, we see the responsibility of males, as it were, to lead. And incidentally, when you go to chapter 4 and verse 7, if you have any questions about the clarity of the words that are that are found in chapter 3 and verse 16, here we're talking about Cain and Abel. And God says, sin, it is that is, sin, desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. It's almost the identical expression. But now it's talking about sin that when Cain and Abel in their relationship and how Cain must respond... Cain is is told, sin wants to rule over you. And isn't that what Romans chapter 7 is all about? Sin shall no longer rule over you because of the work of Christ. But sin's desire is to master us. And he says, you are to subdue it. So I think that clarifies the text in chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, when you pick up in the New Testament and you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 10 in particular, it goes back to those events of the fall and and, and and cites those as the reason and the basis for the stipulations that God has given where men are to be the head over uh, their wives just as Christ is to be the head over the church so first corinthians 10 and then again in first timothy 2 down there at point d uh, both of those texts when they talk about the role of w- women and men in the church They specifically go back to the events that we were talking about in the fall and cite that as the theological and doctrinal basis for the teaching that's been given. And then you have the other teaching that we find in 1 Corinthians 14 and Ephesians chapter 5 where it is talking about that in the context of, of the submission of women in the context of male leadership that is to take place. Now, let me just lean on this point, if I can, in a sort of early conclusion. And that is, I don't think there's any question but what the Bible says to men, that we are to be leaders. We are to be leaders in our family. We are to be leaders in our marriage. We are to be leaders in the church. And we are to be leaders, I think, in in the world in which we live. We are commanded to do that. And therefore, when we fail to lead, we sin. Now, that's what Adam did in the fall. He failed to lead. And, and God pronounces a curse upon Adam and upon men because of that failure. So the failure to step up to the plate and lead as we ought to is sin in God's sight, and we ought to understand the subject in that light, I believe. Now, let's talk about the nature of spiritual leadership. And and I'm not sure that I've got a great definition of that, but at least it's a start, and you can can perfect it and let me know what your uh, improvement is. But spiritual leadership is leading with divine authority and power to glorify God through the spiritual growth of others. Leadership is intended to bring about the progress and spiritual growth of other people to the glory of God. And you do that... With the authority God gives and with the power that He gives through His Spirit. The, the, one of the key texts that, that I would say for me in, in spiritual leadership is Ephesians chapter 5, because there it talks about the man's spiritual, I should say, the husband's spiritual responsibility to lead his wife in the context of it being a mirror of how Christ has led the church by giving himself sacrificially for it. So the purpose of Christ's work, his headship within the church was to save and sanctify and purify and perfect the church, and that is to be the goal of the man within the mar- the husband within the marriage. I believe it is also the goal of all spiritual leadership. And that is it is to bring other people to spiritual maturity. That was Paul's passion. I think it is the passion of everyone who is true to God's word. And an example of that, I think, is, going back to Genesis, uh, Joseph. Remember in the early stages, uh, when Joseph has those two dreams and he shares it with his brothers, here's a young, let's just call him a teenager. He's probably, if it were in in our circles, he's just learning to drive. He's invincible. He knows everything. I mean, I don't want to sanctify Joseph's folly at that stage in the way he talked about the authority. But as God brought him through the school of suffering and adversity he came to understand that leadership was a stewardship that he had and that it was his responsibility to bring his family to the spiritual place they should have been. And I say that because Jacob was not fulfilling his leadership role. That was the point of that text. Jacob just miserably failed as a spiritual leader. And it took this young son to be raised up to bring that family to the point that they should have been Uh, and, and, of course, all of that through God's working in Joseph's life. Now, let's talk about what spiritual leadership looks like. I've added a few points, and I'm not sure this covers all the territory, but it seems to me that these are characteristics. This is a really important subject for me because what I have seen over a number of years of ministry is I've watched a number of young women looking for husbands and, and one of their desires is they want a man who is a spiritual leader. And, and there's been a kind of um, personification of what spiritual leadership looks like that's more of a personality type and, and, and more just of a characterization that I think is not really true. And my experience has been that many of those who married thinking they were marrying a spiritual leader Uh, became convinced of the fact they were just marrying a dictator and there's a world of difference between those and and I fear that some of those people that we look at and and I've even heard people say that person would be a great leader and you know what they mean that person is assertive maybe even pushy and, 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 and always is pushing things to one point or another I'm not sure. That's necessarily what spiritual leadership looks like. Not to say that there aren't times when God has used people like that. In fact, I would have to say Paul, I think, was one of those guys. Uh, Isn't it interesting when you look at Paul that he would go into a place and he'd have a revival or he had a riot. But it's interesting to me that they sent Paul away. You know, when Paul would be there and preach, and and the church sent Paul off on his way, because if he would have stayed there, it would have just been horrible. So Paul had a very aggressive role to carry out. But there were other people that stayed on and ministered in a less aggressive way. And yet we all look at Paul and we feel guilty if we're not just like him. Now, we need more Pauls. We need more people, especially in evangelism, who are more aggressive. But we also need people who lead in a different style and who are the maintainers and sustainers of of the work. Okay, so the first characteristic is that leadership is a humble task of service. Leadership is a ministry. It's not a promotion. (laughs) Believe me, it is not a promotion. It is a place of service. And that you see all the way through the scriptures. You start with our Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about his humility and his, his incarnation and so on. That is, the, that is the mindset that we ought to have. You look oftentimes in the Old Testament at what it was that was the downfall of rulers. It was arrogance. It was arrogance. A, a classic illustration of that is Nebuchadnezzar. where where Nebuchadnezzar begins to look and he begins to say what a great guy am I what a a great work I have done he does not understand at that moment in time it is God who is at work and his job as Daniel reminded him was to care for those who were weak and those who were afflicted his job was not to gain at their expense his job was to minister to them and care for them which is one of the great failures of David's ministry uh, in David's ministry when he took Bathsheba And Nathan is basically saying, you should have been protecting the helpless and you victimized one. That's the wrong thing for people with authority to do. It is a place of service. And by the way, I put Deuteronomy 17 there because that's where it says that he is to read the, he is to write out a copy of the law for himself and he is to read it continually that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen. That he doesn't get proud. If there's anything that will humble anybody, it's the law, isn't it? That's where you say, oh man, I really failed at this. That's the point. Uh, Secondly, uh, it requires godly wisdom. If there's anything that's necessary in a leader, it, it is wisdom. And you remember when Solomon... Is, is given the chance to ask for anything that he might uh, wish from God, he says, give me wisdom. This one thing I need. How can I... With my limited scope, how can I possibly lead this great people in my own abilities? And you remember that instance then in First Kings chapter three, when Solomon uh, becomes the king, and these two women uh, bring uh, bring their case to the king, and, and apparently they had one of them had rolled over on their son, and and it, it had died, and now the dispute was whose child is this? Solomon says, "Well, cut the child in half, give half to one mother and half to the other." And the real mother said, "No, no, 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 just give her all away." Great wisdom. That's what it takes to lead. And that wisdom comes from the spirit of God and from the word of God. It requires initiative. Now, not always. We have to be careful, because sometimes a man begins to act before he hears, but there is a time when one recognizes there is a problem and it just has to be addressed. And I'm thinking, for instance, of a classic illustration of David and Goliath. Here's a situation where David is not in the military. He has no responsibility, so to speak. He has no responsibility to deal with this this, uh, Philistine warrior. But what he recognizes is, here is a man who is speaking against his God, and nobody is doing anything about it. And he takes the initiative, even at the resistance of his brothers, he takes the initiative to deal with the problem because he knows that God would want him to do so. Four, it requires sacrifice. We can certainly go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and talk about the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry came in a sacrificial way to bring about the birth and the life of, and the health of the church. And I have to say to you, if anyone has aspirations for leadership, prepare to sacrifice. It will cost you in, in all kinds of ways. Now there is there is a joy in leadership and there is a blessing in leadership, not much status in it, but 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 there is also a sacrifice one of the things that often people will experience is if you have been one of your peers and you now all of a sudden are moved to a, to a leadership role you, you know now it's it's them and us and you feel there's a certain distance that comes with leadership there are certain things you will know as a leader that you can't share generally and so there is there will be uh, certain kinds of sacrifice that come time energy and heartbreak Five, it requires faith. There again, I think about David and Goliath. There reaches a point where a leader, if they are going to take the initiative, they are going to step out, they are going to step ahead of others. And that requires a trust that God is going to part those waters, so to speak, in front of you and that God is going to act. So leadership requires faith. Think about Gideon. And God's going to work through Gideon, but the first thing Gideon has to be convinced of is God is actually there and in it with him. And when he hears what takes place in that camp of the enemy, then he says, God's really here. And he steps, steps forward. It requires courage. I'm thinking of Joshua in particular, but you remember those first uh, verses of Joshua chapter 1 where God is speaking uh, to Joshua and he's telling him to take over and he says over over and over again, be of good courage. Be strong and be of courage. This is a task that is going to take a courageous heart. You remember, it's going to involve going up against the giants. Uh, that was the downfall of the nation Israel in the first generation. It requires one to stand alone. and The best example of that is our Lord. When our Lord took the leadership role of bringing about the, the birth of the church, the salvation of lost sinners, nobody was more alone than our Lord in the sense that the disciples forsook him. They didn't understand him. There are lonely moments when leaders just have to stand alone and, and they have to believe God is with them. And, uh, but anyway, there are those times. It requires one to suffer, not just to sacrifice, but to suffer. There are uh, costs for leadership. In various parts of our world today, if you are a leader in the church, you are marked for death. You are marked to, to be beaten. You are marked... To be put to death. And that's not just in one country, that's in many countries of the world. Some of my brothers, who I know in India, are facing that in places in India where I have been, but the the mood has changed. Africa, other places. Great suffering for those who lead the church. It was so in the ancient church as well. It requires one to, to deal with opposition. One of the things that leaders experience, as Moses did, was that when you lead, people are always there to second guess or to oppose you as, as to where you're going. I have found it fascinating when I read through the Psalms and, and you, you see David crying out to God, sometimes another psalmist, but they're crying out to God about all these people who are trying to get to them and whatever. And, and I also used to read that thinking that he's talking about the Philistines or, you know, that's the enemies from without. And all of a sudden you realize, these are Israelites. These are people who are, who are on the inside, who are somehow opposing and giving great grief to David and to others in authority. Opposition does come, and you have to deal with it. It requires submission to authority. Here's a really interesting one. I love that text in Matthew chapter 8, where the centurion, remember, it has, has the, this need for his servant, and, and he asked Jesus to do something, and Jesus said, all right, I'll come. And the centurion says to him, now, you, you don't need to come. I, too, am a man under authority. Not of authority, under authority. And he says, I can say to somebody, do, it, do this, and they'll do it. I can, I can lead at a distance. And it's not because of my personal authority, it's because of the authority that I'm under. That's the authority in which I operate. Man, that is tremendous confidence to realize it is not your authority. It is God's authority, if indeed it is the work of God and He has called you to to do that. It is not, however, authoritarian. When you look at our Lord Jesus, it would have been easy to bludgeon people (laughs) into submission, would it not? and and to deal with the dullness of the disciples in a a pretty high-handed manner. But what you see in in our Lord's life, and you see this with Paul, is Paul has a gentleness. He does not want to raise the club of authority. He wants to to petition people that the Spirit of God and the Word of God would work in their lives. And that's why in Acts chapter 6, when the leaders of the church have to decide about this whole role of dealing with the widow's issue they're saying we have to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word because it is ultimately the authority of the word of God and it is the work of the spirit of God that changes men's hearts so that they will actually make spiritual progress. So there's not the authoritarian kind of leadership. And you remember, there are, of course, authoritarian people like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If they slap you on the face, so on. That's not the leadership style that we see in the New Testament. Twelfth. It emerges often in crisis and in times of need. When I look at the guys in the Old Testament who, who who became leaders, men like Joseph, it wasn't that Joseph was reading books about how to become a great leader. He just served, did he not? He just served his master well. When you look at Daniel, uh, Daniel was not striving for a position of leadership. He was simply seeking to serve but most of all, to be faithful to God. And what's interesting is, you remember, Daniel does not rise to, in a sense, prominence until Nebuchadnezzar says, if, if this wise man cannot give me the answer to my dream, then we're going to kill all of them. So now you have a crisis, and it's Daniel who steps forward in crisis And and becomes more prominent. But I don't see men striving to be prominent or to be in authority. I see men striving to serve and be faithful. And that faithfulness often in times of need emerges in a way that leads to a, a, a greater leadership role. Thirteen, I'm adding numbers here. It requires knowledge of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 17, the book of Proverbs, over and over again, you see that those who rule and those who lead need to be people of the word. In fact, their authority is God's word. And when they act outside of that authority, then that raises a whole set of other issues. Fourteen, it requires godly character. Leadership is based upon godly character. Now you see that in 1st Timothy chapter 3, do you not, that when you when you look at the qualifications for an elder and the qualifications for a deacon, the prominent element there is the kind of person they are. Now it's important that they know doctrine, it's important that they're able to correct doctrine, that's there as well, especially in Titus, but but the kind of person they are has a real bearing on that. When you look at Joseph, is it not interesting that he proves himself faithful with respect to Mrs. Potiphar before he really moves into the the most prominent role? Is it not true with Daniel that Daniel in chapter 1 proves himself to be one committed to moral purity before he ever rises to the positions that he does? So I would say moral character is an essential, fundamental, basic prerequisite for what we would call uh, true spiritual leadership. Okay. Now let me see if I can if I can tell you how I believe the New Testament Church principles best develop and utilize uh, male leadership. A. Where the men don't lead the women uh, where the women don't lead, the men must. One of the beauties of the way in which God has set things up is that God has required a system that, that in a sense forces men to step forward in, in the meeting of the church you know, because the women don't speak if a man doesn't speak nobody's going to say anything is that not right? And, and so the meeting of the church somebody had better lead and the system is set up in a way that prompts men to get off their chair and to, to begin to take a, a leadership role as they should B, authority and leadership is decentralized, and that is favorable to developing leadership. That's what I'm saying. Decentralized leadership is favorable to developing leaders. When you have an authoritarian system, whether that be in, in, in politics, in, in some country in the world, you don't have a, 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 a nice, reasonable, logical cessation, uh, succession of power system set up because the dictator doesn't want anybody to take over. And and so if you have a very top-down system, then there's not the kind of freedom to develop, as it were, men who would step in uh, and fill the gap. Uh, So we've got, for instance, a plurality of elders and deacons. That is, we are decentralized in our leadership. It is not one person but many who lead. And you'll notice that in some ministries we have co-leaders. And there again, what we're doing is developing more leaders, and that makes it possible for us to spin leaders off into other areas of ministry and bring others in. I think that's very, very helpful. And I'll just add another little aside, and that is, with a decentralized form of ministry, when a leader falls, and they sometimes do, when a leader falls or fails, everything doesn't collapse because they weren't carrying at all. And I would say the other part of it is when you have a plurality of leadership, it's those fellow leaders who are there to keep each other in line so that there is less failure. When you have a system where somebody is in absolute control of the finances and, and all of these other areas, then you've got somebody who's beyond question. You've just got more temptation to get in trouble. When you are accountable to your brothers for how and and, and when you lead, then there will be less failure because of the accountability. C, every leader should be developing future leadership. That's my belief, that because we have the kind of leadership that we do and we need to have the next generation of leaders coming along, every leader ought to be looking for somebody, drawing them in alongside and preparing them, as it were, to take over. That's... That's just the way I think it ought to be. D, the church meeting provides the opportunity to observe leadership. Think of this. Our children are there, and they can watch leadership, and what they will discover is different people will lead, and they will lead in different ways. All right, I'm going to go on out on the limb a little further, and I'm going to say, and they can also watch it when it doesn't work. They can watch it when leadership fails or falters, And and, and that is all a learning opportunity for them, for our next generation of young men to say, this is the way leadership works. This is the way it ought to be. And then point E, it provides the opportunity for young men to gradually exercise leadership. There are various kinds of things that can happen in the meeting of the church. Just praying, reading a passage of scripture, passing out the elements. You don't have to get up and deliver a a sermon or a message. You can move into uh, leadership in a gradual way. And I think those are all healthy things to do. All right, conclusion. I would say to the men, purpose in your hearts. Purpose in your hearts with me to be a better leader. None of us are the leaders we ought to be. None of us are the leaders we should be. Purpose to be a better leader. For those of you who are not... And I don't mean that, by the way, that being a leader means to have an office in the church. I mean that you, that you assume some level of leadership. You take a responsibility in some area. If you're not leading and you know it, look for a place of service. Don't look for a place of leadership. Look for a place of service. Look for something that needs to be done and roll up your sleeves... When you look at Joshua, Joshua washed the hands of Moses. I mean, he learned leadership from the underside. And I believe that's really what it is. Leaders are faithful servants. And and so look for a place of service. Study leadership in the Scripture. How godly men became leaders. Look for their qualities, their weaknesses. And recognize individual gifts and calling. Not all leaders are alike. Not all leaders are the same. I love it with Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, and the same problem. The Israelites are going out and marrying foreign women. And in Ezra's case, remember, he weeps, he tears out his own hair and whatever, and the people say to him, Look, lead, lead, we'll follow. You lead, tell us what to do. Nehemiah, the same thing comes along. He pulls out their hair. <laughs> you know, you have two very different styles of leadership. My point is, people lead differently. And one of my fears for, 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 for men is that they think they have to be aggressive and assertive to lead. I don't believe that's true. They, they, they at times need to take initiative, but they don't have to be uh, guys who can sell snowballs to Eskimos just just to be able to to have a place of, of leadership last fix your eyes on Jesus there is no question in my mind but what you know there is only one leader that we imitate fully and that's Christ that's what that what ephesians 5 says to men love your wives like Christ loved and led the church look at him don't 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 buy all these books by people who are telling you this is the way you get there and this is the, you know, all, all that stuff. Forget that stuff. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author, the finisher of the faith. And, and think about his leadership. Now, No leadership could be better than what God does for us. And, and when we lead, we are simply following him. He's the leader of this church. He's the one who leads. We're, we're following him if we're leading as we ought to. And and I was just thinking about how beautiful the leadership qualities are when they're in God. When you think about, remember the statement says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not true with God. That is not true with God. He has absolute power. There is no more comforting thought to me than the sovereignty of God. I know some people chafe over it, but I want to say, do you want to serve a God who somehow isn't able to do everything he wants. But when you have a God who knows all, who has all power, who delights to save sinners, and he loves to show mercy, that's the kind of leader I love. The sovereignty of God is a beautiful thing when you have a loving, gracious, merciful Savior who is in absolute control. If you haven't trusted in Him, I would say this. Acknowledge your sin. He's the one who provided the way of salvation. He led the way. He is our hope. He can forgive our sins if we acknowledge our sins and trust in Him. Father, thank You for the leadership that You have taken to save us and help us to take those leadership roles that you have given to us. Help men to be men in their homes, with their wives, at work, and in the church. To your glory and the good of your people. Amen.